But where we are now in 2022 is we can take what we have in Northwest Arkansas from a mountain biking infrastructure standpoint and from a mountain bike culture standpoint, and we can put it up against anybody's in the world. It's, it is absolutely transformative what happened. Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam and Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College, and welcome to the Be Epic podcast. I have with me today, Brendan Quirk, who is Chief Executive Officer of USA Cycling. But he has a long history of leadership and entrepreneurship in sports, the sports industry, and in cycling in particular. Thank you so much, Brendan, for taking time to meet with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So, Brendan, you, you know, people often say uh, follow your passion to some degree. Um, I actually don't say that a lot because if you're like me, you never know what your passion is for sure. <laughs> uh, but clearly you've done that. Uh, it seems like to me, am, am I right about that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, to a fault, I followed my passion and thankfully it, 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 um, it worked out. I guess I was lucky, you know, you go back to the stone ages of media. Um, the first time I ever saw a bike race was in 1986, a long time ago. Um, that's back, you know, it's certainly pre-internet. It was even pre-cable TV. And um, I was 15 years old, flipping channels, which back then was flipping through four channels, I think. And um, it was on a Saturday afternoon, and I stumbled across television coverage of the Tour de France. Never had seen it, never thought of it. Um, you know, I was living in Little Rock, and I'd never even seen a big mountain before. Yeah, I'd never been to Colorado. I'd never... Um, never, never seen anything like that. And I came across uh, the day of the big Alpine state, one of the days of the big Alpine stages of the Tour de France. And it so happens when you look back in history, 1986 is one of the most dramatic um, races that the tour ever had. And I came across it and it just hit me like a lightning bolt. And it was like a religious experience. It's like, oh man, this is the most beautiful, amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. I need to figure this sport out. And um, I just got obsessed with it starting back then when I was 15. And the obsession has never stopped. And uh, I'm so grateful I was flipping the channels that afternoon. No kidding. You never know what either you're going to come across in life that that really trips your trigger, so to speak. Back in um, Little Rock, back in 1999, you started a retail bike shop. What you did too is you you got into the e-commerce area of of being a bicycle retailer, which back in the early days was um, really unusual. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, you know we started a retail bike shop in the Hillcrest neighborhood of Little Rock. I mean, this thing was the size of a shoebox. It was tiny, and um, you know what what pure like a lot of small business owners it was a function of my passion for you know for this business for this industry what what's interesting about having been in little rock is that the bike market was not big at that point you know it really caused an explosion in cycling in america 
was Lance Armstrong becoming a phenomenon. He won the Tour de France seven years in a row, and it started in 1998. We opened this bike shop in the late 90s, right around the time that that happened. And I would say the cultural, the broad cultural impact of Lance Armstrong of popularizing cycling hadn't really happened yet in 1999. So the bike market was still small in Little Rock, but because I was racing bikes, I was very passionate for high-end bikes, exotic bikes, exotic bike equipment, the kind of stuff you're not going to sell a lot of in Little Rock. And so the guy who I started the bike shop with, who is actually a U of A graduate, his name is Craig Zedeker, we, uh, you know, we turned to the internet very early. That era of the internet, you know, there was no such thing as a checkout path, no such thing as encrypted credit cards. You literally could not do commerce on the internet at that point. Rather, what you had is the internet was kind of like Reddit. If you imagine Reddit with no photos and no videos, these are um, listserv groups and Usenet forums, and it was sort of prehistoric social media. That's how we connected with people across America who were passionate about cycling. And we started selling some high-end bike goods you know, through these forums and through these groups. And what, what that gave me a lens into is, man, the national bike market pretty big for, for high-end bike stuff. It's something I really didn't have a view into through Little Rock. And so we, you know, we really started to focus on that. And when you go into 2000, 2001, when the first you know, movement in e-commerce, and this is e-commerce 1.0, when that started happening, you know, most of the national scale bike retail that was being done was still through catalogs at that point. We're like, you know what? There's a real opportunity here. We didn't use the phrase, first mover advantage, but that's what we did. And um, we went all in on the internet and we found some great design firms, some great technology consultants, and we poured our heart and soul into building a business called Competitive Cyclist. You You fast forward from 2000, 2001, when we started that to 2011, what we ended up doing in central Arkansas is building the largest e-commerce cycling company in North America, and it was one of the three or four biggest in the world. And it was just the most improbable, incredible journey. But we poured our heart and soul into it. We followed our passion and it worked. Yeah, I love that story. Of course, I've I've known it for a while mm-hmm. since I've known you, but it is such a neat story. And to think that it happened right here. And then, of course, uh, you sold the company to backcountry.com. That was a big deal. I mean, there weren't a lot of uh, e-commerce companies being sold in Arkansas uh, back then. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. There were not, and it was um, so. You know, to it's so just uh, full disclosure. So I was a uh, English major in college, and I do have a master's degree, but it's in creative writing, not in business administration. And then Craig Zedeker, who was the, my co-founder of competitive cyclist, his degree from the U of A was in communications. So, you know, the amount of business know-how that we had was not great. You know, where we were really fortunate is that um, we had an incredible board of advisors from across America that had the expertise that we didn't have, that helped us. You know, when we got to a point, um, if, if you remember 2008, 2009, the great American mortgage crisis, um, you know, that, that was uh, um, a real wake-up call for our business. It's like, okay, what, 
you know, we are definitely selling discretionary goods here. And how do we ride the wave of the economy? How do we manage this? Because you know, we never took outside capital into the business. We relied on a great relationship with our bank. We relied on vendor credit um, as we became a kind of as we became a bigger and bigger part of our vendors. Uh, you know, lives, we could lean on them harder for better terms. That's really, we kind of cash flowed and used debt to grow the business. Um, never took outside capital. And we got to a point when we got through 2008, 2009, what we recognized, even during the mortgage crisis, is that our customers are so passionate about cycling that no matter what else is going on in the economy, they were going to spend money on the thing that they had the greatest passion for, which was their bikes. So we went into the mortgage crisis saying, oh, man, are we in big trouble? Um, and we actually got through it in pretty good condition. But at that point, it was such a scare. We recognized, OK, you know, we are basically personally guaranteeing everything having to do with this business. We have no outside capital. We're growing so rapidly that we weren't going to be able to continue to cash flow and use debt to grow the business. We were going to have to find a different means of growing. So as we and our board of advisors really began to explore what those potential options were, backcountry.com came to us because they were very successful in all sorts of outdoor verticals, especially skiing because they're based in Park City, um, you know, camping and hiking and trail running and all these other, you know, rock climbing. All these other verticals they were very successful in, but they really struggled in cycling. And they spent a lot of money and spent several years trying to crack the code on it. And they just couldn't do it. And so I think they finally, they, they became our biggest competitor. And I think it's the classic, you know, builder to buy it conundrum for them. And they decided to buy it. And so as we were beginning to explore how we were going to continue to get the capital we needed to grow the business at the rate we were growing, Backcountry came to us. And, um, you know, as the classic story goes, they made us an offer we couldn't refuse and um, we sold the company. The thing that's fascinating about it is that at that time, Backcountry was owned by Liberty Media. And Liberty Media, for, for those of you who are uh, uh, you know, fans of American capitalism, who I'm sure most of your podcast listeners are fans of American capitalism, Liberty Media was founded by a guy named John Malone, who's one of the the most incredible modern day industrialists and investors in, um, in all of America. And what was fascinating for me, imagine if you will, here I was, knuckleheaded kid, bike racer, like modernist poetry in Little Rock, Arkansas. You go back to 2001 where we started the business. Fast forward to 2011, 2012, when we sold the company, I ended up serving on the executive team of backcountry.com. Our board meetings were held at Liberty Media and at those board meetings with John Malone. And it's just like mind blowing this journey that we went on to be able to spend time and um, learn from and be very intimidated by people like John Malone. It was an incredible journey, an incredible crash course in business. And uh, yeah, I was very, very grateful for it. You know, one thing, there's a lot of th interesting things that you said, but one earlier was, uh, you know, you surrounded yourself, good leaders surround themselves with great people. And you you knew where your weaknesses were and you surrounded yourself with people that could really help you. And that, it takes a little bit of humility to do that, you know, because none of us, no matter, even if you had an uh, undergraduate degree and an MBA, you still wouldn't be able to know everything you need to know about business and doing 
growing competitive cyclist and then selling it to back countries. Just there's so many parts to that. It's pretty complicated. Uh, there's no doubt about it. One of my dearest friends and the, the greatest business mentor I ever had is a guy named Scott Kerslake, founder of a company called Athleta, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's now oh, yeah. by the Gap. He was also the CEO of Prana, the yoga, the yoga clothing company. It's very, very successful and had a lot of other business success in his life. He is one of the most incredible, brilliant, um, amazing human beings I've ever met. And I will tell you that the greatest stroke of luck that I had in my business career was when I was introduced to him and he was a cyclist and he just, we hit it off and he took an interest in this project that we have of competitive cyclists, because I think he saw a lot of himself at a previous point in his life when he was trying to grow Athleta. The interest that he took in me and mentoring me and really being a cornerstone of our board of advisors changed my life. And I still stay in very close touch with him. And, and the, the, the importance of mentorship and your right humility and being willing to, to to listen to people who have stood in the shoes that you're in right now to listen to them and their lessons learned because everybody makes mistakes everybody wishes they could go back in time and do things a little bit differently to be able to talk to those people and learn from them and to get mentorship from them is if you can figure that out i i absolutely believe Pretty much anything is possible. And we were really the, I was really the beneficiary of that. And our company was as well. So you have surrounded yourself with some pretty amazing people. And earlier you mentioned John Malone. Um, he used to be known as the cable cowboy, I believe. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Um, and uh, you're right. He, he was someone that really, I don't know what he's doing now. I've, uh, but he was someone that really um, understood, to your point earlier, the power of business to make a huge difference positively for everybody. People think of the um, robber barons. Yeah. And that's really a false term. You know, there's actually a book called The Myth of the Robber Barons. Um, if you really look at what these people did, it's pretty remarkable. And we wouldn't be doing what we're doing today without them. But, but yeah, John Malone was clearly, so you actually got to spend time with him. Uh, you know, it's, 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 I would say brief moments of time with, I would say there are two figures that I spent a little bit of time with that I, I remember vividly. One is John Malone. And then one is the CEO of Liberty Media, a gentleman named Greg Maffei who's another you know, titan of American industry. And it was brief, the, 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 the extended time I spent was with their teams, but to get, you know, just to talk business with these guys for even just a couple of minutes, um, they're so successful, they're such big personalities, it makes a big impression on you. And um, you know, just to be part of that, uh, even at arm's length, that Liberty Media ecosystem and the other companies they owned, uh, for me, it was a crash course in uh, was, was a crash course in e-commerce because if you go back to that time that I'm talking about, 2011 and 2012, the bet that Liberty Media was making and a lot of other companies were making their own similar bets was what Amazon was trying to do, what Amazon.com was trying to do, which is being all things to all people and and winning over uh, all you know, it's having their hands in every American's wallet through. 
um, price, through convenience, and through selection. That that wasn't necessarily guaranteed to be the winning formula for Amazon back then. And what Liberty's thesis was and why they had acquired Backcountry and why we became part of Backcountry was a belief that specialty retail ultimately would win. Expertise and curated selection, all of those things means more than price selection and convenience. And I would say now 10 years later, what the market has determined is actually price selection and convenience wins and specialty retail is secondary and companies like Amazon and their greatest competitor, Walmart, they can deliver a, a, a specialty retail experience, specialty retail insights um, through other means. Um, but it was it was fascinating. You go back to 2010 and 2011, Amazon was losing loads of money. They were still struggling to uh, acquire customers. And it was a, it was just a fascinating time to to see e-commerce at that era when so much change was going on. And uh, for a lot of people now who look at Amazon and just reflexively, you know, it's prime buying this, buying that, or Walmart plus buying this, buying that, you know, you go back to 2010, 2011, it was still the wild, wild west of e-commerce. And lots of people had lots of ideas about what would win. And so to, to be within arm's length of that um, was just amazing to witness. Yes, indeed. Um, so you went from, you were at Backcountry as an executive for several years, and then you went to uh, Rafa and became, Rafa Racing Limited, and became president of Rafa North America. And this is like uh, one of the great cycling apparel brands um, in the world. How did, the great, how, the great, the, the greatest. <laughs> How did you how did you make that transition? So um, we, a competitive cyclist, we started selling Rafa back in 2005 and 2005, 2006. The first time Rafa was literally ever shown in the United States was at a, a trunk show in New York City. And um, the founder of the company, a guy named Simon Matram, he and I had a good friendship. And that trunk show in New York City was a group of people who were friends of Simon, because Roth is based in London. And um, so it was a group of Simon's friends in New York City. And then Simon asked me to invite some of our best customers from New York City, some of our best competitive cyclist customers to have this trunk show. And we did. And uh, it was um, it was a real success. And that really started the business relationship. There was a long period where competitive cyclist was selling more Rafa in the United States than Rafa was. And we grew and grew and grew as Rafa kind of exploded in growth and as competitive cyclists grew. You know, it was just a great relationship where um, we both really thrived together and increased our profile as brands in the U.S. cycling market. And I, I just always had a, a great relationship with Simon and um, go to this time when he and I started. I left backcountry in 2014. Um, I had a non-compete. So I just spent a year goofing off, um, and which is not as much fun as you would think, by the way. But it's a different conversation from an, for another time. Kind of goofed off for a year. And Simon got in touch and said, look, he said, you know, we are kind of an overdrive in terms of growing. We feel like there's a real opportunity over the next three years to, to really drive value in this business. And then we think 
um, you know, there's probably an opportunity for us to, you know, you know, take some chips off the table. He said, but one of the great, um, one of the great challenges we currently have in the business is we want, we believe we are a global brand. We want to sell the company eventually when we sell it as a global brand, but to sell it as a global brand, we need to do more in the U.S. The U.S. is not, our sales aren't strong enough. It's not a big enough percentage of our global business. And if you want to sell, we want to sell this as a global business, we have to be just crushing it in the U.S. So we need somebody to lead that, that, that process of figuring out how we can do more in the U.S. So that's why I was hired. The, the, I would say the, the punchline of that story was that I think what we thought at the beginning is there would be a lot of U.S. specific initiatives that would drive growth, drive brand awareness, drive growth in this market. I think what we learned very quickly was it is actually was going to be initiatives that drove the global business that would disproportionately impact the U.S. business. And, and at, mostly they were technology initiatives having to do with the direct to consumer um, you had e-commerce experience in the U.S. And so that's really what we worked on. We did two things. You know, we really invested in the e-commerce experience, and we also rapidly rolled out stores in the U.S. And we did what we, we aspired to do, which was we really caused a spike in, in, um, in the U.S. market and um, you know, started a process to sell the business in um, you know, 2017. And we did so very successfully with a really strong, strong global business, but really strong U.S. business. Well, it, it, I mean, it's really interesting, too, because you had all this experience with selling bikes and e-commerce, and then you really leveraged your knowledge for something related to cycling, but different, very different than bikes at Rafa. And then all that knowledge, of course, led into you becoming the cycling program director for Runway Group. And for those of you listening that don't know, Runway Group was founded by Stuart and Tom Walton, which are the two of the uh, four children of Jim and Lynn Walton. Jim's the son of Sam Walton. Uh, but Tom and Stuart were wanting to drive economic development and quality of life initiatives in, in Northwest Arkansas. And they did that through, they are doing that through real estate, hospitality, outdoor recreation, and many others. But they hired you specifically to cultivate cycling in uh, Northwest Arkansas. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit? I, I think that first and foremost, Tom and Stewart are incredibly passionate cyclists. I mean, that's what it all comes back to is that they have a love affair with, with bike riding uh, as strong as anyone you'll ever meet. And I think that through their passion for cycling, um, and this goes back to 2006, 2007, they looked at Northwest Arkansas and, and what they saw was like a blank canvas. You know, they, uh, you know, Stuart had spent a lot of time in California. Tom had spent a lot of time in New Mexico. Um, they had done a lot of mountain biking there. I think they would come back home and they would be like, why don't we have these trails here? What we experience, you know, on the front range or in Flagstaff, you know, the terrain here is just tailor-made for trails. There's a lot of undeveloped, um, you know, beautiful um, land here where we can put trails. And wouldn't it be amazing to help transform this community if we, if we um, really started to become known for a destination for mountain biking? 
And so I think it was the work that they're doing more than anything else is based out of their personal passion for the sport and the fact they want to share their passion uh, for the sport with everybody in Arkansas and Missouri and Texas and anybody else will drive to the trails. I think it's by happy circumstance that it has turned into a real cornerstone of, of um, the identity of Northwest Arkansas. And I think that when you talk about the value proposition of why one of your students in business school would want to remain in Northwest Arkansas for work, why someone that Walmart or Tyson or J.B. Hunt, when they're recruiting people, why they would want to move here, I think all of a sudden, one of the you know, one of the really compelling reasons of why Northwest Arkansas is um, is that what's now it's just now it's world class mountain biking. It is genuinely world class mountain biking. It is the caliber of the trails. It is the quantity of the trails, um, and it's taken a long time for it to get there. Um, you know, if you think about the first trail was built back in 2007, but where we are now in 2022 is we can take what we have in Northwest Arkansas from a mountain biking infrastructure standpoint and from a mountain bike culture standpoint, and we can put it up against anybody's in the world. You could put it up against Durango, Crested Butte, Park City, any place globally for that matter. Um, it's, it is absolutely transformative what's happened. And uh, it's super improbable. But again, this is what happens when you're just totally tenacious about chasing your passion. And uh, yeah, it was exciting to be part of it. Uh, you know, it's not just mountain bike trail development. Um, you know, clearly they are very invested in cycling companies. When I was at Rafa, it was RZC Investments that's owned by Tom and Stewart. Uh, they're the ones who ultimately bought Rafa. The Rafa North American headquarters is now based in Bentonville. They're investors in Allied, which is this amazing uh, bike carbon fiber bike manufacturing company that's based in Rogers. Um, and they have other investments. They also were devoted to a lot of public policy initiatives to make Arkansas as a state at the maximum level of bike friendliness in terms of, for example, legislation around the legality of e-bikes and things like this. Um, so it's really their work is really a three legged stool. It's what they do philanthropically to um, build cycling infrastructure and to support cycling nonprofits. It's what they're doing from a for profit investment standpoint to really drive the startup culture and innovation culture around cycling in Northwest Arkansas. And then lastly, it's from a public policy standpoint. Um, on a, which is really focused on a local level and on a state level to make it so that Arkansas is the most bike-friendly state in America. Um, they're really focused on all three of that, that, that three-legged stool. Well, and you're being very humble. You had a huge role to play in creating the vision for this. And certainly mountain biking is huge. And um, But, you know, we've got all these paved trails, too. Yep. Um, we didn't have any when I first moved here. Now you can ride from Fayette, South Fayetteville to Bella Vista, almost to the Missouri border. You, you, you can ride from Kessler. You can ride from Kessler basically into Missouri, uh, completely away from traffic. I mean, it's incredible what the experience is of riding the Razorback Greenway. Absolutely. You know, so, and, and, and also, um, you know, in, in fact, as you know, I have a, a gravel bike. A really nice one from Allied Cycle Works and Able. Um, and you didn't mention, I don't think, uh, that uh, you were actually the interim CEO of Allied Cycle Works um, for a couple of years. Um, and 
Would you mind telling a little bit about that story? Sure. No, it was, you know, allies, it's most, um, anything in the sport, sporting goods space that is carbon composite manufacturing, almost all of that, regardless of the sport, it's, it's talking about golf club shafts, tennis rackets, skis, bicycle frames, uh, by and large, all of that's going to be Asian manufacturing, which the reason for Asian manufacturing is obviously to keep costs low. Um, I think there is a, you know, there's always a flip side to keeping costs low. And what you are seeing, at least in the outdoor industry now, is a movement towards onshoring, where um, the sophisticated manufacturing is now coming back to the U.S. A lot of reasons for that. Costs are getting higher in Asia, Asia, geopolitical pressure. But I also think there is a quality control. And when you really look at the life cycle of manufacturing, um, there's both quality control, but also how quickly can you innovate? How quickly can you troubleshoot? It's difficult when a lot of the decision makers are in North America, but the manufacturing is, is going on in Asia. So I think there's a lot of time efficiency when you can, uh, time efficiency and, and um, real cost efficiency and innovation acceleration when you onshore production. Allied is one of the first companies that wanted to test this thesis of what happens when everything is under one roof. What happens to the quality of the product? What happens to the pace of innovation? Can you be competitive on price um, when you manufacture in the U.S.? So like a lot of startups, it had a little bit of a rocky road. And when they went to raise some money, they came to RZC, they came to Tom and Stewart, and they said, would you be willing to, to invest? They were really eager and excited, um, but they wanted to, um, you know, they just, they really wanted to make sure that they had a, a very short connection between where they sat and what was going on in the company. And so they asked me if I would do, uh, you know, an interim spell as CEO to ensure that their investment was, um, you know, being um, stewarded in the best way possible. And so I was glad to do that. It was interesting for me because it was my first experience in a manufacturing environment. I will tell you, especially if you're students out there who are business students who are you know, unsure of the direction that they want to go in business, manufacturing is something where you need to, I, I feel certain, you have to have a passion for manufacturing. You have to be that guy who likes to take apart the, the radio or the, the toaster or whatever and then put it back together. But manufacturing is something where you have to have a native curiosity for it. Um, or else I think it's, it's, it is, it's too hard. Manufacturing is so hard. But if you have business students who are like, man, I either want to go into business school or I want it to be an engineer, those are the kind of people that the manufacturing environment is an amazing environment to be in. And that was a real lesson for me. So your, your experience with selling bikes, selling cycling apparel, you know, manufacturing bikes, uh, promoting cultivating entrepreneurship and business activity around cycling. Um, you have a very broad experience and now you're chief executive officer of USA Cycling. What is USA Cycling? Yeah, USA Cycling is the national governing body of the sport of bike racing in the United States. So we're like what the national governing bodies are, we've all heard of like the US Olympic Committee, which is now known as the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. What it does is every sport in the Olympic program has a national governing body. So the U.S. You know, the U.S. Golf Association is the national governing body of 
of um, the sport of golf. The U.S. Tennis Association, for example, is a national governing body. Um, we've all heard of USA Track and Field, USA Swimming. Uh, USA Cycling is that. You know, we are a nonprofit, and um, our our mission is twofold. We are responsible for growing the sport of bike racing on a grassroots level all across America, while at the same time um, striving for sustained international success with our national team. And sustained international success, that means Olympic Games. We're responsible for maximizing the Olympic medal count for cycling every year or every four years in the Olympics. We are responsible for delivering performances in the world championships across all cycling disciplines. And so on the one hand, our role is to introduce newcomers to the sport of bike racing. But on the other hand, our goal is to identify promising talent, develop that promising talent, and then support Olympic medal-capable athletes to achieve that international success. So I have such a deep passion for bike racing that for me, it's, it's, it's I can really nerd out on this and I get very excited about it. We host about 20 national championships every year, and we participate in, in World Cups and World Championships all across the globe. We have something coming up um, later in the middle of October, October 16th, um, called the UCI Cyclocross World Cup. Would you mind telling, uh, sharing a little bit about that? The cyclocross is, it used to be this kind of niche wintertime sport, which is sort of, you can think of it as like a combination of kind of gravel riding and cross-country running is what it's basically the easiest way to describe it. And what has happened over time is what started as a niche sport that was really popular in Belgium and the Netherlands has turned into this cult um, global uh, wintertime phenomenon for cycling. And uh, it's an amazing sport. Uh, what's amazing about it is the races are short. You know, the races are about 45 minutes to an hour long. You're doing laps. So it's very friendly for spectators. It's very friendly for television. Uh, historically, it was the first cycling discipline where gender equity really came to life. In other words, where the fan base was equally passionate for the women's races as it was for the men's races. And um, it's such an exciting discipline that when we had the opportunity to host the world championship there in Fayetteville, we jumped on the opportunity and it was a smash hit uh, how, how well it went. If you have the opportunity to go out to the World Cup race, you'll get a real flavor of what it's like. On top of that, you get to, to get to visit Centennial Park there in Fayetteville. It is one of the foremost cycling facilities uh, in all of North America in terms of the caliber of the trails, the caliber of the built infrastructure there. Um, it is beautiful for cyclocross. It's beautiful for mountain biking. But it's, frankly, it's also beautiful if you go up on a you know Saturday morning with your dog and just go take your dog for the walk. You get some beautiful views from up there. Um, seeing all of Fayetteville, looking south towards the mountains. It's just gorgeous. It, it is beautiful. Um, I was amazed at the amount of stonework. Yeah. And just, it really is quite amazing. I think, yeah, if you're listening to this and you haven't been to Centennial Park, it's worth going just to behold. Um, like you say, go for a walk. But uh, the cyclocross uh, championship is so amazing. I, I had never seen it before. One of the things that I really thought was interesting about it, um, Brendan, is that 
there were literally people from all over the world. I met yeah. a bunch of people from the Netherlands and Denmark and France and just, you know, all over the world. It was surprising that they all came here uh, for this. And they were here for several days because you'd see them in restaurants and out and about. What a great event. Uh, it was I'm looking forward to the next one that's coming up in a couple of weeks. We're excited to have it. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for taking time uh, to share with us. Uh, you have a very unique experience in cycling. You probably are more knowledgeable about cycling than anyone in the world. And uh, <laughs> I so I appreciate you taking time to, to visit with me today. My pleasure. Well, it's good to see you. Go Hogs. On behalf of the Sam M. Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic, B-E-E-P-I-C.